Welcome back to Season 4 of About South. Today, we're talking to Brian Ward, historian and professor in American Studies at Northumbria University in Newcastle. We sit down with Brian to talk about his 2017 book about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1967 visit to Newcastle University. As Brian explains, this was a profoundly exciting event for those in Northeast England. At the same time, the public memory of the event had faded over time until Brian worked to bring it back to the public consciousness. We also talk about how King's 1967 visit intersects with a long history of social movements in Northeastern England and how that history is remembered throughout Newcastle today. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. We're talking to you today about something I just recently learned about from your relatively new book, came out in 2017, that looks and contextualizes at the history of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Newcastle. So just to begin, can you tell us about, I think most people in the U.S. probably don't know anything about this visit of King to Newcastle. Can you just give us a little bit of the context of the visit, when it was, how it came to be. Sure. Um, King was invited by the University of Newcastle upon Tyne in late 1966. And Newcastle at that point was a relatively new institution. It was looking to uh, attract some publicity. It also wanted to find a way of galvanizing the student population by aligning them with the great social issues of the day. And of course, King fitted the bill. He was someone of great stature. He was internationally renowned. So he'd bring a bit of sparkle and glitz to, to Newcastle, to the new institution. But from the perspective of the vice chancellor who ran the uh, the university and and most of his uh, his uh, staff it was also an opportunity to uh provide a focal point for students to engage with these great social issues of the day, of which uh, in Britain as well as in the United States race relations was clearly a major uh, a major social concern and when when did the visit occur well he gets invited in late 66 there's a bit of a sort of snafu around the communications um, so it's uh, early 1967 that he confirms he can come Originally, the, uh, uh, the visit scheduled for uh, the regular congregation in May of 1967, but he's imprisoned in Alabama, so he has to defer that visit until uh, November, which is kind of good because it means that there's a uh, congregation specifically devoted to him getting his honorary doctorate in civil law. So it's the 13th of November 1967 that he eventually uh, shows up. And that's a really pivotal time, and also, as you point out in the book, an incredibly busy time in King's life. He's... I just recently traveled here, and I can say that it's not, even in 2019, it's not the easiest journey. It involves some connections. What seemed to be... It seems clear, you know, from what you said about why Newcastle wanted... Why do you think... King was also interested in this visit. It's a really good question. And as an American historian rather than a historian of Britain, that was the thing that most interested me. 
he ends up spending only eight waking hours in Newcastle, yet he flies the Atlantic, gets an overnight train from London up to Newcastle, a city he's never heard of, really, to get an, an honorary doctorate from an institution he'd never heard of prior to the, uh, the invitation, and gets on a train after the ceremony, goes back down to London and flies back again the next day. Well, that's an extraordinary gesture to make. And I was really interested in why he bothered. You can see why Newcastle would want someone of that stature to come. You know, you sprinkle some fairy dust on the, on the new institution and aligns with its sort of sense of civic responsibility. But for King, you know, he's in the middle of the Poor People's Campaign. He's um, campaigning for Carl Stokes, who's uh, standing as the uh, mayoral candidate, first black uh, mayoral candidate uh, for um, uh, Cleveland. He's also in the middle of lots and lots of anti-Vietnam War activism, and he's got his pastorate to run. You know, he's co-pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church with his father in Atlanta. So why did he squeeze in this, uh, you know, it's almost quixotic kind of leap across the Atlantic with Andrew Young, who came with him? And uh, I think there are multiple answers to that. The most prosaic um, basic answer is... He'd accepted an invitation. He tried to honour most of the invitations he accepted. But frankly, everyone at Newcastle was expecting him to bail out because of his recent incarceration. He wasn't very well and the tightness of his schedule. But then I sort of found a letter that King wrote in the wake of his uh, visit to, uh, to Newcastle, which I think gives us some clues as to his state of mind and why that international recognition might have meant something very important to him at this particular moment. I think we tend to freeze Martin Luther King in time. We think of him as someone who always knew what he was going to do next, who always had the answers, who was very confident about his role in the movement. And that's really not what King was like in late 66 through to his death in, 60, in April of 1968. He was racked with doubts about his own ability to find new ways forward for the African-American freedom struggle. He's obviously under enormous amounts of pressure from African-American radicals who associate with the Black Power movement who think his time has gone and that you need a more militant nationalistic stance um, to, to further black aspirations. He's also um, out of favour with black moderates because of his stance on Vietnam, which alienates Lyndon Johnson and lots of the white liberal apparatus. And so they're um, sceptical about King as a, as a viable leader. They think that he's stirring up too much trouble. White liberals who've been generally supportive of the campaign for black voting rights and black uh, civil rights in the mid-1960s are alarmed by the new radicalism that King is uh, introducing through the Poor People's Campaign, where he's talking much more about class and economic uh, inequalities, and certainly that's what he talks about in Newcastle uh, a lot. So there are lots of reasons why King is feeling embattled at this moment. He's been at the forefront of the struggle for the best part of 12 years by the time that the invitation is issued. And I think that takes its toll. He's genuinely exhausted. And while I think there are also sort of perils of retrospectively diagnosing people, I think he's probably on the edge of clinical depression. Certainly lots of the people who, uh, who were talking to him at this time talked endlessly about his sense of uh, foreboding, his despair about finding the correct paths forward. In the midst of all of that, King gets invited to go to a place that admires what he's done in the past and wants to give him the strength and uh, the determination to continue his struggle. And when he says, writes to the uh, vice-chancellor of the university th to thank 
Newcastle for uh, their hospitality and for the uh, bestowing of this honorary doctorate. That's what he talks about. He talks about how in the face of the barbs and arrows of the daily press in America, this recognition of his past work gives him courage to continue. And I think he just wanted to go somewhere and feel the love. Yeah, and there is something quite powerful for anyone about getting away. You just can't underestimate that sometimes a bit of a change of scenery can make you feel re-energized. I think so, and especially going into an environment where people were genuinely uh, respectful of what he'd done and thought he was someone who might offer insights in how Britain would deal with its own race relations issues in the 1960s, which were becoming acutely pressing um, during that time. But I think you're right. The initial plans for King's visit had a Um, a much longer stay. He was going to do a couple of days' work in London, come up to Newcastle for three days, and then go on for a holiday in Edinburgh. And I actually think one of the other motivations for coming is he always wanted to go to Edinburgh. He'd applied there to do doctoral work. You know, he'd never been. He knew that vaguely Newcastle was in the northeast of England and would be en route to Edinburgh. You know, as it happens, Newcastle, that, that visit on the 13th of November was the only time he was ever outside of London in all his times in England, and he never made it up to, uh, to Scotland, to Edinburgh. So, Mr. Chancellor, I ask you now, both as a symbolic gesture and as the highest mark of distinction this university can afford, to confer upon Martin Luther King, Christian pastor and social revolutionary, the degree of Doctor of Civil Law, honoris causa. I confer upon you the degree of Doctor of Civil Law and Norris Coulson. Mr. Chancellor, Mr. Vice Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here today and to have the privilege of sharing with you in this significant experience. Words are certainly inadequate for me to express my deep and genuine appreciation to the University of Newcastle for honoring me today in such a significant way. And I can assure you that You're honoring me today in this very meaningful way is of inestimable value for the continuance of my humble efforts. And although I cannot in any way uh, say that I am worthy of such a great honor, I can also assure you that You give me renewed courage and vigor to carry on in the struggle to make peace and justice a reality for all men and women all over the world. In honoring me today, you not only honor me, but you honor the hundreds and thousands of people with whom I have worked and with whom I have been 
associated in the struggle for racial justice. And so I say thanks not only for myself, but I also thank you for them. And I can assure you that this day will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. I know that uh, from your book, and you put it very delicately in the beginning, that you happened upon some evidence of this visit in the archive. Can you tell us that story and what that must have been like, as well as some people in your life are skeptical about whether or not you really did have such archival success? Yeah, I think that'd be fair to say. So picture the scene when I was barely more than an embryo in the early uh, 1990s. I was invited to give my first ever uh, job talk for an interview. Um, And I was told that uh, this was at Newcastle University. And I was told that uh, one of the requirements would be that I should teach the King special. And I'd read that Martin Luther King had spent a few hours in Newcastle. And I thought, isn't that wonderful that the university was curating that legacy by having a special subject for final year students that was a year long that they could opt into to study Martin Luther King and the African-American freedom struggle in the northeast of England. And uh, I said this in my interview, and there was just astonished stares all around the table. No one in that room knew Martin Luther King had ever been to, uh, to the institution that was actually interviewing me for that job. It was purely happenstance that they had a course on Martin Luther King. So having you know, got the job, um, I then decided to find out what I could in, in terms of paperwork about the visit and the registry and uh, the vice chancellor's office. I had quite a lot of correspondence. I went to Atlanta and I saw the correspondence coming away so I could piece together you know, the, uh, the, the negotiations to have him come and the terms and conditions and how long he was initially supposed to come and Coretta Scott King was supposed to come out. I thought it was actually quite useful and I thought it was an interesting little article. But then uh, I discovered um, some photographs. And in those photographs, it seemed pretty clear to me that uh, someone had been recording while King was there. And you can see the, uh, the edge of one camera. And I just basically thought, OK, I need to go on the hunt for that, uh, that footage. The university, ever since King, uh, King's visit, had always responded to requests for information about what King said in his unscheduled um, speech at the end of the ceremony. Um, they just referred them to the local press and to the national press who, uh, where journalists had taken notes about the gist of the, uh, the speech. And as it happened, the audio-visual centre of Newcastle University at the time was, was in the medical school. And I found a bigger cache of photographs, which was great, which confirmed that there were more wires and camera lenses and one thing or another. And ultimately, I found two tins, um, one of which had, the, had eight minutes of footage of King delivering his impromptu remarks at the end of the ceremony, and one which had the soundtrack. Um, and we actually had to splice them together so we could have a, uh, a, uh, an audible piece of film. Later research um, persuaded me that actually that was about eight minutes of a 30-minute speech, and we managed to piece together some of the other things that King talked about from the journalistic coverage and from eyewitness accounts, so we know the gist of what he said, but we just have this eight beautiful minutes of King, who's monstrously jet-lagged 
I mean, he's, he's bone-tired. You can see, quilting together this speech from things he said in the past, um, bits of Bible uh, quotation, and sort of somehow managing to, to massage it into something that was very relevant to British uh, society in 1967 too. You had to be... A, a friend of mine once said during archival work that it's, pe- it's peppered with grace as a process... But I have to feel like that is a serious moment of archival grace where you see, when you realize what you have. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair, fair comment. You know, I'm an American historian who works on the African-American freedom struggle and the U.S. South, who is resigned to the fact that I'm going to have to fly the Atlantic on a regular basis to find any primary sources that I really want to work with. And 500 yards away from where I work in the northeast of England is an undiscovered Martin Luther King, not just the speech, but footage of him giving the speech. And you know that's not going to happen very often. And this is going to sound very hubristic, so I've written, published 10 books, but the only one that matters in the northeast of England is finding that source. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful and incredibly lucky to have stumbled across uh, this this little uh, bit of history. I have to say my uh, daughter, who is rising 13 now, um, has adamantly refused to believe that I found that footage um, until, you know, she knows the footage exists, but her sense of archival work is, well, you didn't really discover it. It was just there, wasn't it? I mean, Uh, that's fair. I I know. She's my biggest critic um, in so many ways, um, but I think of late, since the, uh, the you know the book and one thing or another, she at least understands the process whereby I discovered something that was lying latent in an archive next to things about you know uh, diagnosing lung cancer and the like, which was the bizarrest thing of all. Absolutely, I mean, I think that you've probably inspired a lot of young. Um, historians and people working in primary sources with this story that they too will find the thing but sometimes sometimes it happens well you know i think good historical research um takes place with a a mix of uh, intense strategic planning and a hell of a lot of serendipity and luck um and you know what i'm interested in now frankly is so where are the other 22 minutes um, of that of that uh, footage, and my sense is that that's the stuff that got um, taken away to be broadcast on the local news magazine program. They took away what they wanted. They cut and spliced. It's the sections that are missing are the ones where um, there's good evidence to suggest King spoke most about British race relations and the cautionary tales and the uh, experiences of America and how that might be pressed into service um, to to pass things like a Race Relations Act uh, to prevent uh, discrimination against minorities. That stuff, if I was an editor on a news magazine program and I was thinking, what will I show the the audience in Britain in the northeast of England? It's the stuff where King talks about Britain would be what I would home in on. So I think that's why that's disappeared. We almost have the kind of rump of uh, of stuff uh, available. That makes sense. But uh, there, a lot of these conditions are arising in England. A lot of people feel that legislation is the answer. Do you think legislation is the answer? I think England can uh, take some uh, a look at America, so to speak, and avoid some of the problems uh, that have developed there. Uh, England could avoid many of the dark nights through which we have passed in America. Dr. King, thank you very much.
And speaking of that history of British race relations, the northeast of England and here in Newcastle, one of the things that you talk about is there's a rich history here of abolitionist action, progressive action. So how does King's visit, it's not simply just this flash in the plan, flash in the pan of an exceptional thing that happened. It's indeed exceptionally amazing, but it fits into a long legacy here in the city and in this region. How do you think about King's visit and others' visits as sort of this line of events and actions rather than just one thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's why I felt I could get a book out of this moment rather than, uh, you know, an article. It's because I think you can put King's visit into almost a Black Atlantic type uh, context um, that tells us something about the African-American freedom struggle as an international phenomenon. It also tells us something about a region of the of the United Kingdom that is traditionally thought of, uh, uh, with some justification, as overwhelmingly white, um, about its myriad connections to Africans, African Americans, peoples of other colors, other races, other religions, um, that goes back centuries. And so there's a you know it's a longitudinal study which begins and kind of ends with King's eight hours in Newcastle. Um, and I was desperate to sort of try to find what it was about the Northeast that made it so um, welcoming to various African American transatlantic travelers. And so, you know, you have Equiano back in the late 18th and early 19th century, spends time in Newcastle. Uh, William Wells Brown is, is here and publishes a book of, um, of songs that can be sung at uh, abolitionist meetings. Perhaps most famously of all, Frederick Douglass visits on many occasions and actually his freedom is technically bought by Newcastle um, Quakers, the Richardson family. Of course, he's already freed himself and that's an important caveat um, uh, to to put there. Ida B. Wells comes in the the early 20th century. Paul Robeson is fated here in the 1930s and 40s. So, you know, if you actually piece together, and I'm just that's just the tip of the iceberg there's a constant stream of african americans who come and find something of value in the northeast and are generally uh, accepted and integrate themselves into a tradition of radical politics in the northeast you know they're, they're they're welcomed by chartists they're welcomed by people who are interested in women's suffrage they're welcomed by people who are pacifists that's what you know, the quaker link is very important in the region and so you know there's a sort of a um uh, m- a series of moments where the African-American freedom struggle, whether it be for the abolition of the slave trade or the abolition of slavery or the repeal of Jim Crow laws, etc., etc., touches a, a nerve in the Northeast where there are similar struggles for greater representation, more rights, less discrimination. And I think that's sort of an important part of this story. And you point out in the book that after... After King's visit, it doesn't end there. Other figures are also here. And that includes, I think you talk about Muhammad Ali and Belafonte and these other names that are certainly well-known and instrumental in thinking about the larger picture of rights. But there's also, you point out, a set of contradictions here about how the region has handled its own relationship with people from other places in terms of xenophobia and um, 
some of the discrimination against Muslim people and people from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So how do you constellate all of this to understand this region? And in fairness, you know, I do that over 100,000 words. So anything I say now is going to clearly of course, of um, course. reduce some of the nuance here. The Northeast has genuine pride in what we can call cultures of welcome. However, one of the things I was, you know, professional cynicism as much as anything else made me very cautious about is romanticizing that because it's usually rooted in a notion of working class solidarity. This is a shipbuilding, coal mining region where lots of people had lots of experience of oppression, marginalization. It's geographically located away from London, away from the center of power. So it had that sense of outsiderness. And there's a sort of very simplistic notion that that's why the, the region has been very sympathetic to refugees, to people who are also being oppressed, marginalized, without a voice, without a vote. And there's a there there. There is some level of, of uh, simpatico between the working class uh, Northeasterners who are white and um, peoples of color or other peoples who are somehow marginalized and oppressed. However... There's a hell of a lot of working class racism and often around employment opportunities and um, social housing, social welfare provision around housing, all the sorts of things that you'd be familiar with as causes of tension in in America. Um, They have their uh, analogies in the Northeast as well. So there's, uh, you know, there are race riots in 1919 against the Yemeni and Somalian population in a region, uh, part of Tyneside called the, the Shields, South Shields. Similarly, there are um, race riots in 1930, 1945 against the same populations. There are thousands of hate crimes of one sort or another that one could catalogue during the 20th and early 21st centuries. So, you know, there's that cautionary note that there are always tensions that bubble to the surface that have been manipulated quite cynically uh, for political advantage at various times. Um, But usually those tensions are... Uh, derived from poverty and uh, a scramble for resources, opportunity and respect, as one might expect. Um, And, you know, I found it very illuminating to use the African-American experience to open up the experiences of other peoples of colour from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Southeast Asia, who do have a presence in the Northeast and to see how sometimes, you know, African-Americans as celebrities almost were being fated at the same time that local um, populations of colour were being marginalised, discriminated against, and one through another. So it's, it is incredibly complex. Um, and I must confess, when I started, one of the agendas was to undermine a kind of complacency about the Northeast being a place of welcome by listing all the bad things that have happened in terms of uh, race relations and to some extent of uh, religious intolerance as well not least around Catholic Irish immigrants, um, certainly uh, Muslim immigrants uh, and uh, and, uh, residents um, now. Um, You know, they're real things. But I have to say that I came to the point where there is a there there about this notion that the region has been um, generally sympathetic to outsiders. That's so interesting. I mean, because any place is complicated, right? I mean, if you have a coin, you're going to have two sides, mm-hmm. um, or sometimes it's not a flat coin, right? There are many sides. I I guess I wonder, too, having spent the week here, 
I know a lot of your efforts have led to maybe some renewed invest public memory investment in terms of Douglas and King and other the history that has happened here. But if you weren't looking for it, I don't know that you would know. I mean, do you think one could spend their whole life in Newcastle and never know any of this? And what do you want to see the city and the region do? And why do you think that's important for this region? Yeah, really good question. So in 2017, when the book came out, it was the 50th anniversary of King's visit. And that was obviously a moment um, it's harder to get money and funding and support to you know, celebrate the 49th anniversary or anything, but the 50th had a moment. And there was something called Freedom City 2017, which was a genuinely huge, uh, multifaceted, artistic, educational and public celebration of King's Visit, used as a tool to rededicate the region, if you like, to ch- uh, the challenges that King threw down in Newcastle, which was to confront the evils, the interlocking evils of poverty, racism and war. And for that glorious, you know, autumn of 2017, I think it's fair to say you'd be hard-pressed not to know about these issues in, on Tyneside. And they had some national coverage and even international coverage too. However, my great fear is that once you've put up the statue to King, which has dutifully happened, um, and the plaque to Frederick Douglass, which again has happened, that actually it's not embedded in the consciousness of the community. And I think that's really important in contemporary terms when, you know, frankly, the scaremongering around immigration and around refugees in the middle of Brexit and one thing or another is exactly the same as happened in the 1960s, the moment that King came to, uh, to, to Newcastle, this sort of paranoia about the swamping of British culture, whatever that is. You know, British culture is built on a multiplicity of, of, of non-British uh, influences and, uh, and uh, borrowings and thefts and homage and parody and all that kind of stuff that an identity is built around. So I think it's important that we remember not King Qua King. I mean, actually, that is quite important, you know, because he did many good things and he said many smart things about the way the world runs and uh, about the the roots of inequality and and, uh, one thing or another. That's important in and of itself. But otherwise, if if you just isolate that, it becomes like an antiquarian interest. It's like saying, you know, and I've got this really interesting, you know, artifact from 1723, but what does it mean? And I think for that shining moment in 2017, the city embraced the meaning of King's Visit, the meaning of all these connections way beyond the region itself that are testament to the diversity of a region that still thinks of itself as overwhelmingly, unimpeachably white, despite the fact that somewhere like the centre of Newcastle is 25%. Um, you know, uh, non-white at the moment, and Greater Tyneside's 14% non-white. You know, it's not like there's not tangible pe- uh, evidence of peoples of colour making their homes here now. Historically, it has always been that, but it's not part of the consciousness and self-identity of white uh, Northeasterners. I think one of the other aspects of uh, Freedom 2017 that actually holds out the promise that, that, that King's Visit will become part of the local consciousness is the work um, with schools. So that, you know, I I went into schools in 2015 through 2017 um, quite extensively and hardly any of the teachers and none of the students 
knew the king had ever been to Newcastle. Now, as the region becomes more racially, ethnically, and religiously diverse, it's actually quite wonderful to go into a local school and see kids of colour see someone of king's stature as someone who's part of the history of the region that they, they live in. Now, because we've put together some teaching resources and we keep working with school teachers in the local neighbourhood around Douglas's visit, you know, there was a wonderful moment where we uh, um, put up the plaque to commemorate uh, Frederick Douglass's uh, time in Newcastle. We had some school children did a project on what does Frederick Douglass mean to me in, as it was then, 2018. And it was beautiful because they stood on this stage and there was 400 people watching and it started off with Frederick Douglass meant this, did this, etc. By the halfway through, they started saying Fred did this. They kind of embraced him as someone who was really a living presence, not in a Trump type way, a no. real living presence in their, in their lives as someone who said lots of smart things about the value of education. And, um, you know, sort of, I, I think that was a, a moment where we got it right in getting to school kids and making them feel part of a globally connected community. Not because globalisation has just been invented, but because Newcastle as a port city um, with global trade you know, from the 15th, 16th century onwards you know, has always been connected and that there are stories from the past that can uh, inform their understandings of the presence, particularly around race and class. There are three urgent and indeed great problems that we face not only in the United States of America but all over the world today. That is the problem of racism, the problem of poverty and the problem of war. And the things that I have been trying to do in our struggle at home and in the struggle that has taken place all over the world has been to deal forthrightly and in depth with these great and grave problems that pervade our world. for listening this week and thank you to Brian Ward for sitting down for this conversation. If you go to our website aboutsouthpodcast.com you can see the full eight to ten minutes that still exist in the archive of King's 1967 speech at Newcastle University. You can also find links and information about Brian's work. We really encourage you to check out his 2017 book about King in Newcastle. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajwa Danto are my co-producers, and Jessica Parker joins us this season as an assistant producer. 
Our music is by Brian Horton. You can learn more about his work at brianhorton.com. You can find more about us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also learn more and support us at our Patreon page. Links are on all of our social media and our website. Next week, we'll be talking to Harlan Joy, founder of WRFG here in Atlanta. It's going to be a wonderful conversation about the past and future of independent media, and you don't want to miss it. Until then, take care. 